there are uh, several stanzas here, and they could almost stand alone in a certain sense. They have a, their own idea. Uh, different metaphors are used throughout this entire psalm. And yet there's uh, one, one main theme that's stringing them all together. And I would say that that's a theme of joy in the Lord. And so hopefully, without showing too much of uh, John Piper influence in my life, hopefully we will be able to see some of that joy spring forth from the psalm this morning. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 16 together. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, nor take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So to start in verse 1, we know that David faced a lot of opposition in his life. Uh, it's evident when we read the accounts of his life in Scripture that there were many attempts to kill him or supplant him or affect him in some other way. So I think we could all see that his request for preservation from God here does make sense. He actually wrote about this uh, elsewhere in his life, uh, 2 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 3. I'll, I'll read it for you, but you can turn there if you want. Uh, 2 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 3, uh, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Remember the horn, for those of you who were here last week talking about the horn being exalted, that symbol of power. My stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. In fact, in that chapter, David would go on to use the word refuge another two times. And in case that verbiage sounded familiar from that chapter, that's because the text of 2 Samuel 22 is largely, with only just a few differences, the same as Psalm 18. So seeing Yahweh as a refuge is a really powerful image for David, and it should be for us as well. It's easy to see uh, the world as big and scary, right? Because it's filled with sinners bent on their sin, much like we were before we met Christ. But Christ and his church, I think we'd all also agree, uh, are not very popular in this world. Because as the gospel goes forth and conflicts with popular sins, the world tends to dislike that event. David trusts God to preserve him because Yahweh is his refuge. And we should see him the very same because the Almighty God never changes. He's the same refuge for us as he was for David. Uh, a few more refuge scriptures. Psalm 11.1 1 says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? Then in, actually in verse 4 of that psalm, we get the answer to such that, uh, a retreat such as that. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. 
So Yahweh can't be moved. He's a perfect refuge for his people. Uh, Psalm 2, verse 12. Kiss the Son, meaning to pay homage to the Son of God, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Uh, Psalm 17, 7. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. And actually, this right hand is going to be an important uh, concept that we'll talk about later in Psalm 16. So there's a little foretaste of that. A couple more. Jeremiah 16, 19 says, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. To you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things in which there is no profit. Uh, if that, I don't know if that doesn't sound familiar to our times or not. That can be up to you, but it certainly sounds like something we could say about our day today. All the more reason for us to seek Yahweh as our refuge. And then lastly on this point of refuge, Nahum 1.7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the, uh, the good shepherd in uh, John, where the shepherd knows the sheep, and the sheep know him, the sheep hear his voice. Kind of echoed that to me as I read that. Okay, to, uh, to verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So this, I'm sure this kind of reads a little odd to us in English, right? He calls him the Lord, and he says to him, you are my Lord. It almost seems a little redundant to say that, probably. But does anyone know the significance of the all-caps presentation of the Lord, where it says, I say to the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Anybody know the significance of that? All-caps, Lord. That's, that's God, right. So the, the all-caps Lord is a stand-in for the a word I love, the tetragrammaton, the YHWH, right? The covenant name of God that he gives in Exodus 3.15. So there was uh, a tradition that the name of God would not be written. Uh, it couldn't be spoken either. And so other names of God would be used. But here in this text, it, it is written I'm sorry, it's written but not spoken. That was the tradition. You could write the name, the Y-H-W-H, uh, obviously in Hebrew letters, right, because this is written in Hebrew, but you couldn't speak the name. So here it's rendered L-O-R-D when we really could say Y-H-W-H or Yahweh. So he's saying, in effect, David is saying to, he's saying, I, I say to Almighty Yahweh, the God of my fathers and my God, you are my Lord. And Lord here is also capitalized as well. Think about that. I mean, this, this kind of thing matters, right? What's capitalized and what's not capitalized. We have kings and lords in our day, if we think about that. Um, they don't hold those titles, obviously. But we have earthly lords that we honor and uh, respect um, and who have some measure of authority over our lives. They could be mayors City council members, governors, senators, house members, judges, these are all people in, a, in a, a seat of authority, according to our human government. But none of them are our Lord with a capital L, right? None of them are Yahweh our God. In fact, they only have their place in earthly government because Yahweh has put them there. 
they serve in those roles because of God's good pleasure, at his pleasure. There is no Lord but the Lord God, right? There is no earthly ruler of whom we could say, what's next? I have no good apart from you. Only, we can only say that of God. Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Every good thing we have is a gift from God. We love him, obviously, for so many reasons, but one of them is that he perfectly provides our every need, even the ones we're not even aware of until later when we think back. He knows us perfectly, and he provides all our needs. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. And we do better when we realize that we aren't the producers of the good things that we have. We work hard and we live responsibly. We save money, provide for our families, but the fruits of those labors are just as much of a gift from God as anything else. So we do well when we confess this to God, I have no good apart from you. May I increase and you decrease. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. If I were to try to summarize this in my own way, I would say because we love God, we love his people. Um, There's actually a a note from the Geneva Bible on this verse, which, by the way, the the Geneva Bible is an absolute just chef's kiss of a resource, right? If you can get a copy, get a copy. You can find them online. It's, it's a treasure. It's really, it's fantastic. There's one line of commentary in the Geneva Bible on this verse, and it says, Though we cannot enrich God, yet we must bestow God's gift to the use of his children. I'm going to say that again because I love that quote. Though we cannot enrich God, yet we must bestow God's gifts to the use of his children. Right, and so when we give, we're not supplying a need in God, right? Because he doesn't have any, right? God is all-sufficient. The earth is his in all of its fullness. So he's, he's set, right? <laughs> he's got it all. We actually have a double blessing if we think about it this way. We have not only the blessing to receive God's gifts, but then we have the blessing to forward on those gifts, to give of those gifts to our brothers and sisters in the faith, And that means both time, which is the most precious of all non-renewable resources, and also material. Another commentary on this verse from John Calvin, which largely agrees with the Geneva Bible. The only way of service service to God aright is to endeavor to do good to his holy servants. So when we spend time with our brothers and sisters in Christ, people who are being made more and more in the image of Christ, we begin to edge out the sinful dazzle of the world. Further on in that quote, Calvin says that we should highly value and esteem the true and devoted servants of God and to regard nothing as of greater importance than to connect ourselves with their society. All the children of God ought to be joined together in the bond of fraternal unity, being joint heirs with Christ, according to the Spirit. Now, because I'm Protestant and a Baptist, I want to talk a little bit about the use of the word saint here because this is a big controversy within the the broader church, and I'm thinking specifically of Roman Catholicism because Roman Catholics see the word saint quite differently than we do on this side of the Tiber River. Um, Does anyone is anyone aware of what the criteria for sainthood in Roman Catholicism is? 
Yet you have to have performed a miracle that can be attested to by an examination. Obviously, you have to live a life of what they call moral virtue. You can take that to mean whatever you like. And then, of course, uh, you must be dead. <laughs> there, there are no living saints in Roman Catholicism. You have to have passed on and be assessed after your, your time of death. Now, these miracles, uh, they, they, there's no one particular category for this. They could be actually physical healings of sick people, or they could be something else, something, some other strange occurrence that can be supposedly be attested to. Uh, for example, St. Sebaldus, who's the patron saint of Nuremberg, was said to have lit a fire with icicles, and that was his, his miracle. That was his contributing miracle to his, what they call, canonization. So they can call him a saint because he's been canonized. Also another, another saint that I, I'm entertained by is St. Guinefor, who was a literal dog. <laughs> Silly papist, right? Obviously, this is not the use of the word saint as David uses it in this psalm, right? These are, who are these people? These are living people, right? These are saints in the land. They're not buried under the land, right? They're in the land. They're living. These are people that he's meeting with on the Sabbath day for worship. These are living people. No record of miracles being done. And yet, David here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls them saints, A saint is a saint because he or she has been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, and all to the glory of God alone. A dynamite quote on this from Matthew Henry is, Those renewed by the grace of God and devoted to the glory of God are saints on earth. I couldn't say it any more clearly than that. Anybody have questions on this matter before we move on to to verse 4? All right, verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. You know, as we study the Old Testament, we come back to this issue of idolatry over and over and over again. We've read it in, uh, in Kings as we do our um, reading of, of the Scripture on the Lord's Day, Right? Uh, It's been the subject of sermons here just in recent weeks. We talked a little bit about it last week as well in Sunday school. We're back to the issue of idolatry, which is constant. The sin listed here is a blatant violation of the first commandment, right? They're running after another god. You shall have no other gods before me, Yahweh says. And actually, if we think about it this way too, it says the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply, Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. So we could even uh, surmise here that they're not only running after another god, they're intentionally twisting part of Old Testament worship, right? Because a drink offering was part of the the offering system, the sacrificial system uh, that was to be be done in the tabernacle and then in the temple. In fact, we see drink offerings, uh, many examples of those all the way through the Old Testament. But these are drink offerings of blood. Those drink offerings were of definitely not of blood, right? Blood is shed in other places, but drink offerings were, were not blood. Um, this drink offering of blood could be a reference to the worship of Molech, actually, where children 
were used as sacrifices. Now, we have no way of knowing that, but that would certainly be a, an offering of blood and would certainly be seen as wicked to God. They t- and this also, so we have the drink offerings of blood, but then we have this other aspect here in verse 4 where David says, he will not take their names on my lips. So, of course, pagan rituals would not only include sacrifices, right? So we've got the blood sacrifice here, but they would have twisted prayers to whatever the name of the false god is. You could think back to the story of uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. They're trying to get their, uh, their sacrificial fires lit. And what do the prophets of Baal do? They're constantly calling out to Baal, uh, even to the point of cutting themselves an offering of blood to try to get him to hear them. The nation of Israel, by doing this, was attempting to seek good anywhere but Yahweh. And it puts me in mind of the high places, which we've talked about in, in recent times. The high places were built, and they were especially conspicuous during Jeroboam's reign in Israel and then afterward. And these high places were purposely situated to face away from the temple. So the people that would go up to the high places to worship a false god would literally, as well as spiritually, be turning their back on God. And that little detail, I think, says so much about the intent of their heart to subvert the divinely sanctioned life of worship that they were obligated to live in Israel. So these offerings here never get honored, right? These drink offerings of blood, these twisted prayers... These lives are never blessed. Instead, their sorrows multiply instead of their joys. These prayers are never heard because these false gods don't exist. They are the figments of man's wicked imagination. And these souls are never saved. And they only have sorrow and not joy. Makes you think as well of how many drink offerings of blood are poured out today. How many names are taken. How many worldly creeds confessed in our world. I think about some of the uh, secular truisms that we may hear in the media, like uh, love is love. I think we've heard that quite a bit. Live your truth, uh, or the, the, I'm the master of your fate. Um, these, in a way, are sort of taking the false God's name on your lips. I actually heard a new one this week I'd never heard of before. Enact your own salvation, because no one's coming to save you. Well, love is not whatever you can make it out to be. Christ is the master of your fate, and he's your savior. He's the one who comes to save you. You can't make your own life. You can't save your own life. You can't save your soul. You can't enrich your own life with your own thoughts. You can't write your own truth. Sorry about a little soapbox moment there, but that stuff drives me nuts. Verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. So we've moved from a a portion of the psalm here that's kind of giving some general principles, some truths about David's relationship with God. Now we're getting into uh, some praises that are stated in in a very matter-of-fact way. These are concrete praises from David to God. So David's satisfied with the good gifts that Yahweh's given him. And in verses 5 and 6, so in this stanza, we have a couple, actually four different words that all are related in terms of the allocation of land. So we have portion uh, and lot in verse 5. 
Then in verse 6, we have lines. We can think of as boundary lines. And then also the word inheritance, which really speaks to it as well. So in the Old Testament, land is typically a family affair. So you would inherit land from a relative. And we know that in the history of Israel, there has been a lot of inheriting of land directly from God. You could think of in Egypt when the people of Israel take residence in the land of Goshen, which is a, a blessed area of land separate from Egypt proper. And then if you really want to get into the weeds, you can look in Joshua chapters 15 through 19, and that gives a, a pretty definitive breakdown of how the land, the promised land, is cut up and distributed between the 12 tribes. Not all the tribes, obviously, because the the, the tribe of Levi, the Levites, did not get a land allotment because they were the priestly tribe. Plus, you can also see some of the drama about the, the land disputes because there's always drama in the Old Testament. But, of course, in this verse and in the next verse, we're obviously not talking about land simply or land only. There is a spiritual level to this. This is about being united to Yahweh not property acquisition. This is about a new status that's obviously highly valuable. And just in the way that acquiring a, a, a wonderful tract of land that's been in your family for a long time, this status uh, is highly valuable and signals, uh, and especially this word, this, this chosen portion, that shows just how highly valuable this status is. This portion is exceptionally precious <clears throat> because the portion is the Holy One who saves you, not merely a, a fruitful field. So this inheritance shows the richness of the grace of God and then also the unworthiness of we who've received the precious inheritance. Here's a, a few other passions to talk, or, uh, passages to talk about this portion. Numbers 18.20 says, And the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any of your portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Right? And this is pertaining to that, the, the, the fact that the, the tribe of Levi did not have a spot of land to call theirs. They were living on the gifts from the other tribes because they were the priestly people. Lamentations 3.24 very plainly says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Here's an interesting twist as well. This is from Jeremiah 10, 16. <clears throat> this is talking about whose portion is the Lord's, and it's actually his people. Jeremiah 10, 16 says, not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he's the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. So not only is Yahweh, the Lord, the chosen portion of his people, but God sees his people as his chosen portion. Right? We are a treasure to God, not because of anything in us, but because of his grace given to us, transforming us. Right? We can see this in terms of the new, the new covenant. We've been saved, our sins are forgiven, the righteousness of Christ given to us when the Lord sees us he sees his son. That is very precious. So we have the chosen portion, and we have the cup. 
The cup is another metaphorical word here, and it has a, a royal connotation, right? Every king had a cup from which he would drink. That usually came with a cup bearer who would test the contents of the cup to make sure that he wasn't going to be poisoned when he, ate, when he drank his morning wine, and then would bring the cup to him for him to refresh himself. But actually, what I find most compelling is the Bible's use of cup of blank to designate things. So, uh, for example, in Psalm 116, verse 13, it says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. And then Isaiah and Jeremiah are filled with references of the cup of wrath, which is normally described as being filled to the brim and foaming with God's justified wrath against sin. So we are only able to, to drink from the cup of salvation because Christ drank from the cup of wrath that was set aside for us. So we can say that the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup because Christ already drained the cup of wrath for us. So we can uh, freely sip or drink deeply from the cup of salvation. Luke twenty two forty two says, Father, obviously Jesus speaking here, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. John 18, 11 says, So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So just to be clear, because Jesus drank the cup that was foaming over with God's wrath for us sinners, we can partake in the bread and the cup at the Lord's Supper, which we will celebrate today as we do every Lord's Day. And then you hold my lot... Uh, to finish verse 5. This, of course, again, referring to land, but land's only partially in view when we think about the word lot because there are many things on a lot, right? There are barns, there's a house, uh, there could be all sorts of other things that we either build or store on our lots. So this is the entirety of everything we have. All that David has is in God's hands because it's God who's given it, right? Every good and perfect gift is from above so not only are we talking about land here, but this is the entirety of our life, everything we, everything we own. Kind of carrying that on into verse 6, the lines have fallen for, me, fallen for me in pleasant places. So David is completely content with his life as God's given it to him. His abode, his living, the whole, the whole of it is pleasant to him. And again, we know from the account of his life that we see in Scripture that it wasn't all roses for him. In fact, it was quite contentious. Whether we're talking about interpersonal strife, like the issue with Bathsheba and her husband, the various military skirmishes that came up during his life and reign. But he can be content because the lines have fallen absolutely according to the gracious design of Yahweh. They are in pleasant places because that is Yahweh's heart toward his people. The pleasantness of David's lot and the lines that it sits within isn't dependent at all on the circumstances of David's life. It's pleasant because that is where Yahweh has planted him, and he's content to grow there. Indeed, he has a beautiful inheritance, right? And actually, this word inheritance is something that we know fully that David only knew shades of because at that time, he only had a foretaste of the glory that was to come in Christ, Praise to God, we have the full realization of the substance of that inheritance. 
And actually, if you want to turn to Ephesians 1, we can actually read about the, the full substance of that inheritance. So Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. So all that text before verse 11 is showing the complete grounds of this inheritance, and it's all in Christ. It all comes from Christ. That we've been predestined uh, to be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. It's not a, a whim that God has done this. He has planned for this. This is all according to his will, to the purpose of his will, so that in him we can have redemption through the blood of Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins, and then receive the riches of his grace. That's absolutely a wonderful inheritance. I think we'd all agree. Now, David can say this in Psalm 16 because he has the same inheritance we have, that he, as a believer in the Old Testament, his justification, to paraphrase the 1689 Confession, his justification was one and the same with the justification of believers under the new covenant. We merely get to understand why a little bit more, because we have the fullness of God's revelation in the Bible, more than he did at his time. But the substance of the justification that David had is absolutely the same as ours, because it's all in Jesus Christ. After all, you can't call it an inheritance if you aren't family, Right? So we have to be joint heirs with Christ to receive the family inheritance, the forgiveness of sins, and to receive Jesus' righteousness by grace alone, and to have hope for eternity in the presence of our Savior. Another passage, just a short one I'll read to you. 1 Peter 1, verses 3-5, through 5, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through the faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Indeed, we have a beautiful inheritance. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So we know that David received counsel from God on multiple occasions, and actually this psalm itself, right, is a result of direct revelation from God. But he also received counsel from God during his time as king in the business of, of being king. So I would think we'd all agree that the wise seek counsel from the wonderful counselor, which is lifted directly from Isaiah 
uh, in an especially messianic passage. So what is the primary way that we receive counsel from God now? Through the Word, absolutely, in the pages of Scripture. In fact, that's why Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God is his word, right? What was he doing? He was preaching from the Old Testament and giving the inspired New Testament sense to the people in Ephesus. So this is a huge part of the role of a preacher is to present the truth of Scripture, reading it clearly, studying it thoroughly, and giving the sense, making the point of the passage known to the hearers. In another Messianic passage, in Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 2, we clearly see Isaiah pointing to Christ as the anointed counselor, right? That's what Christ means, is anointed. Um, Isaiah 11, 1 through 2, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge in the fear of the Lord. So David received counsel from Yahweh, right? And he blesses him here for giving him that counsel. But David also does something else. So he's blessing God for the counsel he gives him. But he meditates on that truth after the day's work is done, right? In the night, my heart instructs me. Even after all, we have to think the king has to step away from his business at some point during the day to begin to rest, to take account of the day, Uh, to meditate on the word of God, right? The king is still a disciple. So when the day's work is done and we've put away the world, so to speak, we're in our homes and we're winding down after our work of the day, a great use of our time is to turn our thoughts to God in a concerted way. We have to remember also that without the counsel of Yahweh, without the input of the word into our hearts, our heart can't instruct us in anything but in sin, Outside of being reconciled to God, our hearts are desperately wicked and will only be set on devising which sins we'd most like to commit next. So our heart can't instruct us wisely if we have not, number one, been changed by the wisdom of God, having our sins forgiven, but to be continually meditating on the word, taking in the word in prayer and study. So David isn't sitting here and chanting om, you know, for several hours, trying to find the answers inside himself, right? He's already received the truth from Yahweh, and he's making application now in, in the night, giving instruction to himself. Actually, David says in Psalm 63, <clears throat> verses 5 through 8, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. They think counsel, right? You've been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. We're getting that right hand again. So this remembrance of God's truth at night, even while in bed, gives David's soul satisfaction. He knows that Yahweh will uphold his life, and he's filled with joy. And that takes us into into verse 8. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. First of all, we want to make sure that we say God is not being moved, right? David does not have power over God so as to move him in front of him. This is about what direction David is facing. 
you're moving yourself uh, in order to look toward God. Uh, perhaps for him in a spatial sense, because of the, uh, the tradition to pray toward the temple in Old Testament Israel. But it's really mainly to look Godward, to set our lives in the direction of Yahweh himself. We must be looking to our God as his disciples. In fact, our delight should be in ordering our life in his direction, seeking to do the things that bring him glory and honor, doing our work to the best of our ability as unto God, not unto men. And then the right hand, uh, a very significant uh, image in the Old Testament, a symbol of power and authority. So this obviously isn't the first time we've actually heard this in several different places today as we've looked through various scriptures. David is saying here that Yahweh's constant and faithful presence with him is what gives him the power he exercises as king. He finds a sure foundation in Yahweh that reminds him that he will not be shaken. Remember last week, actually in Psalm 92, we talked about Yahweh being the rock for his people that his people are fruitful like the palm tree and that the palm tree is planted and flourishes in the house of Yahweh. This is much the same thought, just obviously with a different poetic language used for it, which honestly is one of the things I love best about the Psalms, that we get so much of God's truth repeated, but repeated in, in different language with different images, different poetic forms, which I think is a, a wonderful thing. Verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So all these things have come together to make David's heart glad. Right? The good deeds of God have filled him with gladness and rejoicing. And it's not just his mind right, that ponders the good things that, that Yahweh has done for him. And it's not just his heart that feels uh, thanksgiving toward his God. Right? His entire self is affected by God's goodness to him that his flesh also dwells secure, that he, his faith uh, instructs him that his, even his being, his physical being, is held up by God. He has ultimate trust in the goodness of God toward him, that Christ upholds his life, we might say, because Christ is his life as he's our life. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says that if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So speaking of Christ, we're going to get now to verse 10, which is prophetically looking forward to a key aspect of Christ's ministry. Right, so Yahweh does not abandon his people. Right, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Now, Sheol in the Old Testament is uh, uh, the abode of the souls of those who have died. Uh, in this context here, it's really being used as a place for the wicked. Right, the wicked are the ones that are abandoned, not not God's children. So this is prophetically looking forward to an important event in the New Testament. And would anyone like to take a crack? at what New Testament event is being looked forward to here when he says, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Like This is the death, burial, and resurrection together of Christ. The fact that his body didn't begin to decompose when he was in the grave for three days. 
But the psalm, this actually is a key text in Peter's sermon in Acts 2 to make the exact point. So in Acts 2, verses, really it's verses 23 through 24, he quotes uh, in verse 25 of that passage, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Then he says in verse 29, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, he's prophesying in this text, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So to verse, verse 11 now, we've seen clearly in this psalm that Yahweh is a refuge for his people, and he preserves them. He delivers every good thing that his people need. He's gifted his people with the fellowship of his people. He's promised a beautiful inheritance for his adopted children by faith. He counsels his people, and he gives them truths to ponder in the night. And he gives his people, uh, he causes his people to sing for joy for all his gifts. So because of this litany of glories that David's laid out here, David ends with a robust triplet of praise in the final stanza. You make known to me the path of life. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and what? How does it end? A light unto my path. Proverbs 15.24 says, The path of life leaves up, leads upward for the prudent, that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. Also, Proverbs 10.17 says, Whoever heeds instruction is on the path of life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. <clears throat> right? So we're not wandering through our life aimlessly, trying to figure it out on our own. Yahweh's given us good works, uh, which he set out beforehand for us to do. Right? That's a, from Ephesians 2.10. We're not just figuring it out and trying to do our best. God has set a clear path for our life, and he helps us along that path by his grace. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. Right? So David, all the way through here, has been meditating on Yahweh's good gifts to him and his constant steadfast love. And David fully realizes and confesses here that joy is found nowhere but in God, in his God and our God. Same God, same joy. After all, uh, this is fullness of joy that we see here. This is complete and utter joy. These aren't simply fleeting feelings of happiness, although we certainly should feel happy in our walk with God at different times. But this is a fullness of joy Right, that's lasting. Right? It's fueled by the love of Yahweh toward us who are joint heirs with Christ. And then sort of the, we talked last week, sometimes the middle of a psalm is the high point. I, I kind of think that this final line here is the high point of this psalm. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So think back quickly to that Acts passage that I just read. Who is at the right hand of the Father at this very moment? Jesus Christ, right? 
Christ is key to understanding this. At the Father's right hand are pleasures forevermore, because that's where Jesus is, as our advocate and our high priest. David has detailed so many gifts in this passage that have brought him joy, including the very real presence of Yahweh, right? He says uh, that the Lord is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. And he's contrasted it against those who hate God and worship in ways that dishonor him and attempt to replace him, as if, obviously, if that were possible, which it's not. Instead, the pleasures of God are everlasting and will not run dry. They're all centered in Yahweh's strength, and in his grace toward his people. I have another quote from John Calvin, because, hey, why not? Calvin says, David, therefore, testifies that the true and solid joy in which the minds of men may rest will will ever be found anywhere else but in God, and that, therefore, none but the faithful who are contented by grace alone can be truly and perfectly happy. Anybody have any questions, comments on the on this psalm? Or any parts we've talked about? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the <clears throat> testimony of your grace that we've seen in this psalm today, and how you alone fill us with joy by your presence and with your gifts. And so we confess with David that the lines truly have fallen for us in pleasant places because you hold our lot. Remind us of this truth always and increase our joy today as we gather to worship you and remind us of this the rest of this week as we go from here to our different vocations. Keep us by your grace and guide us on the path of life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.